Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. Again, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to join us for worship today. If you're just now with us, you're uh, with us on the last day of our summer series. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. And today in our readings, we're going to come to the death of Abraham and Sarah in the close of this chapter in Genesis and uh, to the close of our reflecting on their lives. And as Camper mentioned, next week we're going to start a series on the first few books of the of, uh, first few chapters of the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at God's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, talking about what, what can we learn as a church from God's instruction to his churches in the first few chapters of that book. Uh, You'll see the readings in your bulletin there. I'm going to add one to it. This morning we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 3 and reading the whole chapter. And then we're going to skip over. Uh, I heard that back there. Whoa. Yeah. Um, then we're going to be skipping over to chapter 25 and reading verses 7 through 10. And finally we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. This is not in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 16. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that Hebrews reading on page 1007. Beginning at the beginning of the Bible, and Hebrews is right near the end. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. Um, we thank you for the, the freedom you give us, the invitation you give us to come and to worship you with our, uh, for many of us, stumbling, singing, and often distracted hearts, yet you welcome us, your children, home to be with you. So we thank you. And we pray right now as we turn to your word that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might hear and receive your word, that it might do its good work in us by the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of your son and our Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. To the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was the east of Mamre, the field which the cave 
And the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now turn over to chapter 5, or 25, and we'll read verses 7 through 10. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. And then finally, turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Uh, this uh, passage, it's, it's, a, it's about a funeral. It's about what happens at the end of the life for Sarah and Abraham. And when we come to the Hebrews passage in chapter 11, we get some of the eulogy of that sermon, some of, those ref- of that funeral, some of the reflections uh, that come in a funeral on the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so even to mention that, that we're talking about a funeral and we're talking about death, we are talking about one of the somewhat taboo topics for our culture. We just don't like to talk about death. We like to watch it on TV. We like to see it in movies. We like to even read about it maybe, but we don't like to talk about it when it comes to the point of talking about our own. It wasn't always that way. Um, some of you maybe that are art history students will know that uh, in ancient and um, through the Middle Ages, in art, oftentimes you would, you would see pictured something called a memento mori, a reminder of death. For example, you'd have a, a portrait of a, of a young man in his prime, but somewhere in the portrait on the desk or maybe in his hand would be a skull. And it was a visual reminder that though you are in the full flower of youth, one day you will die. It is coming. Those of you know the, the um, play Hamlet, you remember the scene where Hamlet's speaking to the grave diggers and they're digging and they dig up a skull and they tell him that it's the skull of Yorick, the old court jester, and Hamlet holds it up and speaks to his old friend, the jester. Again, a memento mori in the middle of this play, a picture that that is where we are all headed to. 
But we don't want to hear that, right? We don't want to talk a whole lot about death. Um, but it is something that we are guaranteed to face. It is awaiting all of us. And uh, though some people will live to grow uh, old and to die in peace, for many of us, death will come as an incredible interruption in life and a terrible inconvenience, right? Uh, that one day when we, in fact, die, uh, it will come as a surprise. We talk about the idea of, of dying well, being prepared for death. Well, for most of us, death will surprise us, and dying well will simply mean where we are caught at the moment in the midst of our real living. I think it was a Puritan that, that once said that the job of a minister is to prepare his congregation for death. Now, it's going to make you really nervous to go out to coffee with me in the future, isn't it? Um, oh, no, Brandon called. Um, but that is what we have here in Genesis. We have a story of Abraham and Sarah. If you've been here this summer, we've been walking through their life together. And here we have them at their death as they are being eulogized, as they are being remembered, as these texts remind us about their lives and tell us what those lives meant. We have a eulogy. And in this eulogy that we see here this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a tribute and a longing and a promise. Those three things. First, the, the tribute. And this is in Genesis chapter 23. We especially see this at, in the tribute that is given to Sarah at her death. Sarah um, was a, a woman of renown in the book of Genesis. In fact, she is one of the women in the Bible who actually we find out most about. She received some of the most press. As one uh, commentator said uh, in reflecting on the stories that we've read up until now, that come up until now in the book of Genesis, it says this, Up until Sarah, women are rarely mentioned except as adjuncts to their husbands. But with Sarah, we meet a woman of heroic proportions, worthy grandmother of the nation of Israel. And when she passes away, Abraham, her husband, honors her, brings tribute to her. And we, we see that most clearly in what he does in uh, chapter 23 when he buys this field. Okay, now, when we, when we read this chapter, I, I would imagine, you know, for you as it was for me, when we first read through that, it, it just feels like a lot, you know, what is going on here? I, I thought about as I came off this chapter, maybe uh, naming, titling the sermon something like this, you know, Bargaining Customs of Landowners in the Ancient Near East. <laughs> Somehow it didn't really have that punch that I thought would really, um, yeah. But that is what's going on in chapter 23, right? All this give and take of Abraham as he's trying to buy a plot of land to bury his wife Sarah. Now here's why all of that is a big deal. Abraham and Sarah, as we've seen in their life and as the author of Hebrews even refers to him this way, they are aliens, they are sojourners, they don't own any land. God has called them into this promised land, promised it to them, and they don't own a square inch of it. And so when... Sarah dies, Abraham takes the step to honor her, to preserve her in her memory by buying a piece of land so that they can bury her. Now, in that day and time, apparently, uh, sojourners in the land, unless you intermarried with the people of the land, then you weren't allowed to own property. So when Abraham comes to the city gate where all the city business was done, and he says, look, my wife is Sarah has died, will you, he's essentially saying this, will you give me permission to buy land so that I can bury her? 
And they say to him, you know, you are a prince of God among us. He's lived among them for years. They have seen God's favor on him. And he is like a king among them. Among them. And they say, any, take, any of our, take any of our burial places and use it. They're, you're welcome to use it. And the subtext here is Abraham is saying, no, 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 no. I, I, don't want to just, I don't want to just borrow it. I don't want to be in your debt. I want to buy it. I want it to, to be a permanent resting place in my name. Will you sell me property? They're going back and forth, and he goes on and pushes it and says, well, okay, if everybody's open to this, let me, uh, you know, would you, speak to, would you speak to this one man, Ephraim, so that I can buy the cave at the end of his field? And he stands up and says, no, 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 you know, use it, it's, it's yours, and Abraham presses his desire to buy it. And at that point, uh, Ephraim says to him, you know, well, uh, you know, what's, what, to great men such as ourselves, what's 400 shekels of silver that it would cost you to buy this piece of land? And Abraham understands the customs of what's going on, and he picks up on that, and he pulls out his checkbook, and he writes his check for 400 shekels of silver. Now, in Scripture, in different times and places, shekels, the, the weight changes, so it's hard to tell exactly how much that is. But most commentators agree that this was probably a princely sum, that he was paying a fortune for this cave so that he could bury his wife. Why? Because he wants to honor her. Because she has been his partner in life, and he wants to show honor to her. Both Abraham and Sarah being honored. Abraham, in, verse, in chapter 25, when he passes away, who's there at his funeral? His son Isaac and his son Ishmael, who was sent away, who lives at odds with everyone around him, yet back together for this one day to honor their father, the patriarch, patriarch Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael honor him. Abraham honors Sarah, but more importantly, God honors the life of both Abraham and Sarah. And we see that in a few ways. One is that they live very long lives. We're told that Sarah lived to be 127 years old, that Abraham lived to be 175, which means for Abraham that he had lived for 100 years in the promised land. In the Old Testament, often the way God shows his favor is when he bestows long life and a peaceful death and a burial in the land, that those are parts of the ingredients of the good life coming to an end. Now, that's not always true in the Bible of God's people whom he loves, and we see in the New Testament that is often not the case for us as followers of Jesus. I mean, we follow a man who was crucified in the prime of his life, and abandoned by all his friends and buried in a borrowed grave. And we're warned time and time and, and exhorted in Scripture in the New Testament that, that we will suffer too as we follow Christ. So when we look at the sufferings of our own life, we can't say, well, this means God doesn't love me. All that to say, in the Old Testament, often that was a picture of God's blessing. So when they live these long and fruitful lives, it is a way in which God is honoring and celebrating the lives of Sarah and Abraham. And when they die, where are they buried? In the promised land. This land that God has called them to and blessed them with. There's a, um, there's a, a beautiful hymn about the death of God's children, which in the Bible are often called saints, that we are referred to as saints. And it's the hymn for all the saints. And the first two verses go like this. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed. Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou was their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, their one true light. Alleluia.
This hymn is celebrating the lives of saints just as God is celebrating and giving tribute to the life of Abraham and Sarah as they live by faith following him. If you flip back over to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12, you, you see this picture, this summary of the life of Abraham and Sarah and how God called them out of their home and by faith brought them to a new place when God promised them descendants as many as the stars of the sky and they believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again and again, it emphasizes their faith. But if you've been reading Genesis, you know that their faith... Um, often close up looks like it's a pretty rocky business, right? I mean, there's uh, Abraham, uh, you know, lying about his wife, saying it's simply his sister, you know, risking her as he gives her off to foreign kings. There's uh, Sarah sending people away in her anger and frustration. There's uh, doubting and laughing at God's promises. So on the one hand, we read Genesis and we read about the ups and downs of their lives. On the other hand, we, we look at Hebrews and we, we read this just uh, glowing picture of the faith of their lives. And for a long time, when I would read Hebrew, or, yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, and you read this with Abraham and Sarah, but also others from the Old Testament are mentioned. And I, f I would feel like I was reading some sort of revisionist history. Because, I mean, for instance, there are people like Samson and Jephthah who are mentioned here. And if you go back and read about them in Judges, they are shady characters at the best. And yet they're referred to as these men of faith. And here you have Abraham and Sarah, and it talks about their great faith following God, but we've seen the ups and downs of that in Genesis. What's going on? You know what revisionist history is? It's, it's this attempt to rewrite history and replace the old tellings so that your voice can, have, can speak loudest. But I, I, I've come to see that's not what's going on here. Because revisionist history attempts to suppress another telling of history. But the writer of Hebrews knows, expects, and wants you to have Genesis in the other hand at the very same time. So Hebrews is not trying to replace Genesis. It's giving a different perspective on what's going on. The writer of Hebrews knows that you've got Genesis in one hand and you can see up close the ups and downs of their life of faith. But then you have the writer of Hebrews at the end of their lives saying, taken as a whole... Let's see what it looks like. What's the word that gets spoken over their lives in light of God's grace that has pursued them from first to last. And it is this, that they too, for all their failings and faults, were people of faith. You see, that's the good word that is said over Abraham and Sarah. How can he do that? Well, when, when, before we had children and, and as our first children were born and I had this fear because I, I, you'd go to people's houses that had a bunch of kids and they'd have their kids' artwork all over the refrigerator, right? You've seen this. Your parents had yours up. And, uh, you know, parents are always so proud of their kids' artwork, but, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, your kid drew a straight line. <laughs> you know, why? Uh, and, and so I had this fear that my kids were going to bring me this artwork and that I had to say to them, oh, that is beautiful. And the whole time I'm thinking it's just a bunch of scribbles. And like, am I going to be able to pass it off? Am I going to be able to fake it with my kids? So they'll feel loved and affirmed. Well, because I'm sure that's important. So uh, my experience was as my children were old enough to draw as they would bring me their pictures and uh, you know I didn't have to muster up the faith to, some say, to somehow say oh dear that's just that's beautiful because when they brought me their pictures I don't know about all the rest of the kids in the world but my kids pictures were beautiful right I mean they were you didn't and I brought up I brought you know this right here now, if your kid did that, it would be a bunch of scribbles. But my child did that, and it's beautiful. I don't know what it is, but it is beautiful, right? 
Okay. What happens for a parent when they look at the artwork of their child? They don't go, oh, you know, that's no Mozart. I mean, no Mozart. That's no, uh, that's a picture, not music. They don't say, that's no, my note says Rembrandt. They don't, the parents don't look at it, and I don't look at my child and say, oh, is that all the best you can do? And in the same way, when we come to our heavenly father with the little crayon drawing of our lives, he doesn't say, is that all you got? Is that the best you can do? No, he says, it is beautiful, my child. Because God's word in Hebrews, as he looks at Abraham and Sarah and speaks of their faith, is his word of grace spoken over their lives as a benediction. And it means this, that at the end of our lives for God's people, grace wins. Grace wins. For all the ups and downs, for all the scribbles of our lives. And that is incredibly comforting to me. That the story of our lives with all its, their failures, their struggles, their heartaches, they are also the story of God's faithfulness to us. A story in which his grace wins, when it, that it is the final word that is spoken over us. And so let me ask you this. Do you know that's true of your own life? Not just Abraham and Sarah's. Do you know that God looks at you with that kind of favor, with that kind of warmth and care? Do you know that God looks at the, the drawing you're making of your life, the blue crayon that makes the box with the little roof and purple U stick figure walking out to go about your business, to go to work, to care for your kids, to walk to school, to trudge up the long flights of stairs to your dorm room? He sees all the lines and the scenes on our paper, the bright, bold colors and the dark, deep grays as well. And he sees what you and I sometimes can't see with clarity. He sees the strong, unifying strokes of his grace at work in our lives. And he looks at all of this and he says, beautiful. It is beautiful. Now, maybe for you, that's something of a red flag. They're kind of a danger here. I mean, if God looks at the scribbling of our life and finds it beautiful because he loves us and he sees us with the eyes of a loving father, then won't that make us somehow lazy? You know, won't that mean that we don't have any real motivation to move past the simple stick figures to something a little more accomplished, a little more beautiful? Doesn't that mean that we're going to lose any real motivation for obedience and for holiness in our life as we follow after God? Will you tell me? You know, are you more likely to flourish uh, with God's favor hanging out there in front of you like a carrot on a stick that you can never quite reach if we can just be good enough, if we can just get it right enough, or if we can just somehow be artistic enough, then we will get the carrot at the end of the day. Or instead... If you know down to the core of who you are, that because Jesus has died for you, because he has covered your sin, because he is raised from the dead to be our king forever, because he has freely chosen to put his love on you, to bind you to himself, to never let you go, will that be a better motivation for you and for me? You see that the Bible tells us that from first to last, it is God's grace that is the fuel for our lives. It is his grace that brings us into relationship with him. But it is his grace that is to sustain us every day. It is not as though his grace brings us to faith and then we swap it for a life of difficult and arduous obedience where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, from first to last, God's grace at work bringing us to himself, motivating us towards obedience beginning with 
That is beautiful. You see, when my children bring me uh, their artwork and, and I receive it and I tell them how beautiful I think it is and how wonderful and how I can't wait to go put it up on my door in my office, um, what does that do to them? Does that make them just sort of shrug their shoulders and get lazy? Like, well, I mean, Dad's satisfied with that, so I guess I'm done. No, you can see as, as I receive that they, they soak up that uh, encouragement and appreciation and they're back off to their crayons and their paper again to do the next drawing that's just that much a little bit more skilled and just that much more colorful and that much more beautiful. You see, the favor they receive from their father is what actually motivates them to go and make things that are more beautiful still. See, when we get to this eulogy and... This word spoken over Abraham and Sarah, we see that grace wins, and grace wins for us. And it means that we can pick up the crayon without fear. We can get after it. We can draw and draw and draw under the delighted eye of our Father, longing more and more to please our Heavenly Father, the one that we know is already smiling on us. So the first thing we see here is this tribute that is given to Abraham and Sarah in their death. Second thing we see, though, is a real longing in spite of the tribute, in spite of the celebration. Because funerals bring to the front and center, even at the end of a long and fruitful life like Abraham and Sarah's, it brings forward to us the incompleteness of life. You know, the jarring incongruity of people who are made for eternity, yet suddenly losing the very breath of life. One minute there is this life and energy. The crayon is moving and drawing, creating, filling a world with color and texture and beauty. And the next moment it stops and the crayon falls. See, Abraham comes and gives tribute to his wife. But even as he does that and even as he feels this ache, he comes and mourns over a wife who has been taken from him. In verse 2 of chapter 23, that we see that Abraham comes in and he mourns for Sarah. He weeps for her. One commentator puts it this way, Abraham and Sarah were by no means perfect, but they were one flesh. And so Abraham mourned and wept when Sarah was taken from him. This spouse, this best friend, this other half ripped away. And what does he do? He rightly mourns for her. See, Abraham and Sarah had received these great promises of God, but they only had the strength and the years in them to see these promises begin to be fulfilled. They never saw them in their full flowering. They've been promised a country of their own, and as they die, they own one little cave in a field. They've been promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky as they die. They have one promised child, Isaac. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 13 says, They died not having received the things promised, but they died having seen them and greeted them from afar. See, Abraham and Sarah knew as they watched their own lives that God was at work fulfilling His promises telling his story in the world. But Abraham and Sarah only got to see one piece of that fulfillment. They were there for just one part of the story as God was working to fulfill these things. They were, in other words, 
exiles, sojourners in the land. That's the way Hebrews refers to it in verse 13, strangers and exiles on the earth. They were just as they were in the promised land as sojourners, people who were crossing through the land but had not yet come into possession of it. That was true of all their lives. They were waiting for, longing for these promises to be fulfilled. They were longing for more. And what does the writer of Hebrews tell us? Verses 13 through 16. What are they longing for most? They were longing for home. They were longing to be finally home. And they knew that they weren't home yet. See, that's what the writer here tells us. He says, look, if they were looking simply for an earthly home to put their feet up, they would have had opportunity to go back to the land they came out of, where all their family was, where all their friends were, where they knew the culture, where they knew the language. They could have gone home there, but instead they follow God into the promised land, a promised land that is not fully given to them yet because they are longing for a home they have not found yet. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, they were longing ultimately for their heavenly home. The thing that the promised land actually pointed them to, this thing that was the greater reality, the greater answer to their prayers. Abraham and Sarah were living in the tension of what theologians call the already not yet. The already not yet. They had already received these promises of God. In fact, they had already received some of the fulfillment of these promises. They have a cave. They've dined in the promised land. They have their son Isaac. Yet the not yet at the same time. They have not been given the fullness of the promised land. They haven't seen descendants as numerous as the stars. They've only begun to see Abraham and his line being a blessing to the nations. They're living in this tension of having received these promises and tasted them, but they haven't received the fulfillment of them yet. And you see, we too live in this already, not yet. Even on this side of the coming of Jesus. Because we look back to what they were looking forward to. The coming of Christ. He was the one greater descendant who is to come. Who would be a blessing to all the world. He was the one who came to secure for us a home. So we look back and that's really happened. And as followers of Jesus we look back and see that our salvation is found there. That we are rooted to Christ. That we are anchored to Him. That our life is secure in Him. Because of what Christ has done we have been forgiven forgiven all of our sins. God has lavished his grace on us already and at the same time, not yet. Not yet having the fullness of Christ returning. Not yet having the fullness of a world made right, a world healed. The not yet of still struggling with our sin. Of still struggling with the brokenness of this world that's not yet put back together again because we are waiting for Christ to come back. We too live in this tension and dynamic of the already and the not yet. It is our story as well. There's a line from a song by Rich Mullins, whom some of you will remember, from a a song of his called Land of My Sojourn. He put it this way. Nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country and I'll be lonely for my home. A sojourner in the land. And this longing of already and not yet, this longing for a home that we have not come to in its fullness yet, it, um, it, it can play out in two ways for us as we are people who keep our eyes on heaven. You know, those moments, maybe days, but sometimes just moments in life for us where everything seems exactly right, just the way it's supposed to be, 
When, when your mind and your heart are actually quiet, when your relationships are at peace, when you're in that moment and you, you just think, this is, this is right. And you know how fleeting those moments can be. But in those moments, you are getting a foretaste of what we're really built for and what we are going to enjoy one day in our heavenly home, or as the Bible puts it, when heaven comes here and we are given the fullness of life that God is taking us to, that is the picture of what awaits us. And so when we get those moments of tasting it now, C.S. Lewis talked about that as these tastes of joy that come through your soul, and it's meant to point us to something that we have not found yet but is coming to us. It is a picture of God's good home intruding even now into our lives. But on the flip side, those days when you're oh so conscious of just how far, far everything falls short, how nothing lives up to its promises, how everything's at least just a little bit broken, well, it should give us hope in the middle of those moments too. Because one day those gaps are going to be filled. Even in the absence right now, it points us with a longing to the home that is coming to us to which we are being drawn. Even in the holes, we can say we can live in faith and in trust because the home that I so long for right now and don't see is coming and it is guaranteed to me. Back to the hymn for all the saints. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. Alleluia. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on. Alleluia. Alleluia. You see, we do have a home and we are headed there. And our, the home we are ultimately headed to is God's presence in heaven brought here. And we see Him face to face. Well, can we trust that? I mean, here in this eulogy, we've been given a tribute, and we've also been given this longing of our hearts just exposed and laid up on the table. Is it founded in something that's real? Are we going to get there? Well, we see in this passage, too, a promise. How do we know that God is going to fulfill this for us? How do we know that He cares? Well, back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, you see what it says? 11, 16. But as it is, they, Abraham and Sarah and the rest, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you hear what it's saying? It says, Abraham and Sarah and the people of faith in Scripture and we are banking everything on God and his word. That he, in fact, is coming back. That he does have us. That he will not let us go. And what does Hebrews tell us? That God is not ashamed for us to put all our hope on him. He is not ashamed to be called our God because he has all things in his hands. Have you ever had the experience of letting someone down? When your spouse asks you to do something and you don't get to that item on the list. When your child asks you to play and... Suddenly the hours of the day are gone and there's no time and you can see the disappointment written on their face. You know what it's like to let others down, to be ashamed in one sense that they'd put their hope in you and you've left it dangling. But God never does that with us. He is not ashamed to be called our God. You see, the promises in the Bible are either the most glorious news in the history of the world or the, or the saddest 
most tragic delusion that could ever get a grip on a person. And the Bible is frank about that. It's, it's not calling us to wishful thinking and pie in the sky. The Bible understands that the central reality for us, that Christ has come, He has paid for our sins on the cross, that we are now uh, brought into right relationship with God, that Christ is raised from the dead, that everything hinges on that. If that's just a nice story or that's not really true, then everything else that we're talking about this morning and everything that happens every Sunday morning here just falls to dust. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. The Bible knows what's at stake, and so do we. But the eulogy here on the life of Abraham and Sarah reminds us and assures us that our faith, in fact, is not futile. That we do have hope. That we do have a home that's waiting for us. We do have God's favor and presence, even now in the midst of our lives today, being strangers and exiles in the world says to us that God is not ashamed to be our God because he has prepared a city for us. This whole series we've titled Living in Light of God's Promises, and that takes faith. Of course it does. It took faith for Abraham and Sarah, and so of course it's going to take faith for us. See, that's the point of Hebrews 11. It's calling us to have faith like that of Abraham and Sarah, but... You know, my faith isn't perfect. Neither is yours. My faith falters and stumbles, and so does yours. And the Bible says, yes, it does. Just like Abraham and Sarah's. You read in Genesis? Just like them as they struggled to follow this God. But just like them, at the end of the day, their story wasn't really about the strength of their faith at all. If anything, the story of Abraham and Sarah is about the strength of the one in whom they put their feeble, failing faith. See, the story of Abraham is not about how great Abraham is, but how good and faithful God has been to Abraham, to Sarah, to his people, and to us. Okay, listen to me. You are never going to be able to dig down deep enough to have enough faith to bring you home. You're never going to be able to stir it up enough, pray it up enough, pray it down enough, sing it out enough. Because faith by its nature looks beyond itself. Faith looks to something. Our faith is meant to point us to the one we have faith in, to the faithful one, Jesus Christ And that means that we must, if we want more faith, to stop staring at our own faith under the microscope, but instead look up at the object of our faith. Look at Christ and see again His faithfulness, His beauty, His goodness. Several years ago, Elizabeth and I and our family, we were... um, on, on a vacation in the fall in, in Montreat, North Carolina, this mountainous part of North Carolina, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, so we go down into the town of Black Mountain, and, and I, I desperately needed a haircut, so we, we go into this little old barber shop, you know, like Andy Griffith barber shop. So some of you remember what that means. So, uh, 
so we go into the barbershop and the doors open. It's beautiful, and I sit down and I get the longest haircut ever because the barber starts talking. And you know, and somewhere in this, he's asking me about me. And I said that we're here on vacation. He says, "Yeah, you know, we've got." Um, lots of people come here, especially in the fall. Like, you know, we're just a little town. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what they think so great. Well, you walk out the door of his barber shop, and there are these beautiful mountains just erupting in front of you. And you walk out and you go, what's so special about this place? It is beautiful. That's why people come here. And this barber had maybe lost sight of that. And we do sometimes, too. How is our faith going to grow if we open up our eyes and look? The mountain of God's grace is there in all its beauty and splendor, right in front of our very eyes in the person of Christ, right here on the pages of Scripture. We simply need to see it again, not what it might be, but what it is right there, right here, God's grace at work in our lives right now. Open your eyes, open the Bible, and read God is faithful. He is good. He will bring all His promises to pass. He will bring us home. It is all written for us right here in blazing glory. And God's Spirit will use it to build your faith as you look not at the lameness of your own faith, but at the greatness and beauty of our Savior Jesus. That's how we, like Abraham and Sarah, are going to live in light of God's promises. Let's let for all the saints have the final word. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of splendor, streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. And amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you give us eyes of faith. That you would remind us of the goodness of your grace that is the starting point in our lives. That you look at us and you look at our lives and you declare them beautiful because of Jesus. And we can simply say, thank you. May we see your favor. That it might move our hearts to glorify you. To live lives that truly are beautiful in your sight. Not to earn your favor, but because we have miraculously had it lavished on us. May we live with that kind of awe and wonder. Kind of awe and wonder that says, I can't believe it, but somehow it's true. My God loves me. And we thank you that it is true. You are not ashamed to be called our God. And you have prepared a home for us. And that you're with us even now. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be and abide with you now.